it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Assuming you are, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, we're watching a lot of things. We're watching the ongoing war in, uh, in Ukraine, and we're also watching the confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson. And I thought day one, she gave a great biography, got some very respectful questions. That's the whole thing. For here on in, I want every single Supreme Court candidate to be treated with dignity. I mean, this is one of the most prestigious positions in the country. we got to stop with the... Do you like beer? I don't know. Do you like beer, Senator? We got to stop with an 11th grade. You rented a uh, 11th grade. You had a relationship that many people said didn't happen. Other people said you did. Remember they were on Judge Kavanaugh for renting a bus to go to a Boston Red Sox game in college where there was assumed to be drinking? I mean, let's just hope it doesn't get to that. And, uh, and Democrats learn from that. And I know it shouldn't be that contentious because it's a liberal attorney uh, justice replacing a liberal justice. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The problem with the deal is uh, it's badly constructed from the start. It doesn't say, well, we'll lift sanctions off Iran depending on Iran's change of behavior. It says we'll lift sanctions off Iran depending on a change in the calendar automatically. So Iran can continue its terrorism. Yeah, that's true. Benjamin Netanyahu, the former prime minister, is agonized over what will be the worst deal yet. The administration has cut such a bad nuke deal, even the Ayatollah of Iran can't believe it and can't wait to sign it. Gory details that even fellow Dems are alarmed and why we have to stop it. Number two. Our energy policy in this country, subject to, is something that I can entirely blame on Joe Biden and is a national embarrassment. I'd rather buy half a million barrels of oil a day from Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota than from Vladimir Putin. Me too. I don't think that's all that hard to figure out. Me still. President Biden says his economy is rolling. When it comes to gas prices, hey, oil companies, it's you. You. You are gouging. So start drilling. This time, his accusations are answered. Try uh, uh, by the by you, of course, and by the companies themselves in a long letter. I'll let you hear some of the excerpts, and I love it. Number one. One reason that the Russians have been frustrated and, and in terms of the progress that they haven't made, um, obviously a big reason is the Ukrainian resistance. But they're having trouble with command and control on the ground. Uh, so they've, they've made missteps of their own. Yeah, John Kirby with Fox and Friends today. The war. Moscow. Uh, what is going on? As they are shockingly admit they have over 10,000 deaths uh, while haphazardly trying to crush every city from the outskirts, aiming at civilian targets like true cowards. For Ukraine, a fight they must survive and are 100% capable of winning. When will the West realize this? It's win or nothing. Because if we don't stop these guys now, we're going to be defending Estonia, defending Lithuania, trying to prevent the invasion of Moldova. The If uh, Ukraine st- is stopped at these 
incursed borders, you know they're going to come back in a few years and say, we want a little bit more, we want a little bit more. Up, oh, there was a skirmish that broke out again. We don't cover it much, but the Donbass region, I believe since 2014, it seems as though the Ukrainians lost about 9,000 troops. I mean, and you, who knows how many Russian separatists we they have been killed. So that's what we're going to have unless this ends the right way. And it just kills me to see that they're aiming at civilians, blowing up movie houses, houses, theaters, apartment buildings, hospitals, and schools. I mean, who? where are the ethics on a modern army? I'm not saying that they're a Western army. A modern army should have the precision weaponry in order to stop aiming at senior facilities. Don't you think? So that's what's going on in Ukraine. I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown from what I know. Russia's relying on missiles and artillery and uh, the pressure from the Ukraine, Ukrainians that they are getting and the pushback they're getting when they're one-on-one is unbelievable. I cannot wait to get the after-action report when this thing is finally done. It seems like there's a tactical shift now. President Biden pointed it out. We've all seen it. They wanted to invade and get these major cities. They've gotten one. Have you seen the video of this? Kyrgyzstan is the one city. Do you know these citizens are walking up harassing the military vehicles and the Russians in Kevlar walking around with machine guns? The Ukrainians want no part of these people. They should be inspirational, but they've absolutely leveled Mariupol. They've absolutely leveled Kharkiv, but they can't take either one. Mykolaiv, which is the last city before Odessa, which there goes the Black Sea if we lose Odessa. And I say we because I'm pulling for the Ukrainians. Got a flag on my lapel, Ukrainian flag and an American flag. I'm pulling for him. And what this Vladimir Zelensky has done is brilliant. He spent this morning addressing the Italian parliament. And a little bit, a little while, he'll, he'll address the Japanese parliament. He's letting them all know, this is what I'm dealing with. I'm losing kids, 100 What's the number? 169 children have been killed, including 30 since last Friday. Do you believe this? It used to be, and it used to be collateral damage that should be stopped, and we should be better. And America and other Western armies would be, and NATO and our allies would be killing themselves and to be roasted by the public for killing people unnecessarily, even though these terrorists were dressed in civilian garb. This is different. They're aiming for them. Here is uh, uh, President Zelensky talking about how well his men and women are fighting. Cut for Our 26th day of full-scale war is over. After eight years of aggression in the east of our state, the enemy is slowly trying to move, to go on the offensive somewhere, to capture our roads somewhere, to cross the river somewhere. The Ukrainian army, well done, repels these attempts and holds back the occupiers. But he's also talking about let's get with the sanctions. You know, I'm, I'm glad the sanctions are there. I'm happy we've done this. We could be doing so much more. They say on a daily basis uh, they are still getting between a weekly basis five and seven billion dollars cash. There's no matter the exchange from just oil sales. If you could stop these oil sales, especially to Western nations, they would really feel the pinch. Denmark, for example, says, I want the massive sanctions because I'm under, I'm contractually obligated to buy the petroleum until 2030. So let's do it. 
And for those countries like Brazil, Vietnam, India, and South Africa, you should be ashamed of yourselves because you cannot be siding with a brutal dictator without natural resources who's actually aiming at women and children and seniors. Do you know what he did? He went to Mariupol. He told them to surrender. Then he got he rounded up about a thousand people, brought them into Russia and told them they have to work for two and a half years for free. That's according to reports. We know this. They're gone. So that's what that's what kind of war this is. Others are pleased with the sanctions and what they've seen so far, including Bill Browder, who I talked to last night. Uh, hosting for Jesse. He's the CEO of Hermitage Capital. They tried to bankrupt him and kill him. Instead, they killed his lawyer, and he's become the number one enemy of Vladimir Putin and happy to help all all factions out that want to take him down. Cut 18. We are absolutely surrounding Vladimir Putin. The central bank reserves are frozen. 70% of the banks have been disconnected from SWIFT. A dozen of the highest caliber oligarchs' assets have been frozen. And everybody is sitting in fear that they're going to be next in the oligarch community. And I think they will be next. I think this is going to go on and on for the oligarchs. I do. Uh, I do, too. Uh, they got to continue to do that. Yesterday when I was on the air, Bill Browder also went on to say that right before he got on, there was a report of Italy who had uh, on their one of their ports Vladimir Putin's rumored to be yacht. And it's bigger than life. And they took it. So if it's not Vladimir Putin, it's an oligarch close to Vladimir Putin, it's gone. So they're being squeezed everywhere. Their money's being squeezed everywhere. And now what you got to do is you got to get their families, squeeze those families everywhere so they can't just move the money. And if you're somebody fortunate enough to be wealthy and you're finding out all these rare paintings and apartments are going down in a fire sale, can you please do the patriotic thing and not buy it and not bail them out? I don't know how many billionaires are in our audience. I have Pete working on that right now. How many oligarchs listen? I have Eric working on that right now. But if you are rich and see this Upper West Side apartments available in Manhattan, walk away. Because it's a fire sale, because it was, uh, it was acquired on corrupt means, and it's helping keep Vladimir Putin in power. So for the longest time, I know if you really cared and we were in a desperate situation like World War II and we we're in the cusp of World War III if this is not handled correctly, you would realize the best thing we could do is flood the zone with our natural gas, our coal, our oil. We burn it. We, we, uh, we refine it cleaner than anybody else. We drill it with more, uh, more conscientiously than anybody else. But instead, we are getting it from uh, Venezuela, asking Iran to put their oil on the free market. We'll talk about that if, of course, they sign this deal. And asking Saudi Arabia to drill more and provide a Patriot missiles for them, too, to try to get on their good side. But now the oil companies, because gas is so high, have been told by this administration that you're gouging, that you're looking for profits. You know, the money, the the amount of um, per barrel oil has gone down from maybe $120 to about $98. So foolishly and ignorantly, the president of the United States came out and said, and Jen Psaki, his spokesperson, came out and said, you know, why are oil companies gouging? Why is the price so high when the price of oil came right down? I know one thing. I know what I think I'm good at is knowing what I don't know. I have never worked in the oil field. I've never traded on the oil market. So if I am President Biden with all this power, before I accuse people of gouging irresponsibly, not drilling on with 9,000 leases, and saying things like, I have done nothing to hurt the oil and gas industry, I would try to get facts on my side. 
So uh, the companies uh, who met with the White House yesterday, and I hope had the courage to bring that up to them, ConocoPhillips, Exxon, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Cargo, and uh, uh, ConocoPhillips, I hope they just said, listen, the doors are closed. There's no cameras on. Can you knock it off? What you're saying is nonsensical. Marathon, uh, Patterns, and uh, uh, Ivan Energy, U.S. Steel, and Visa all met to talk about the economy, talk about getting inflation down, where the spending is, and the supply chain issues. So in a letter to an oil and gas uh, a trade group uh, representing dozens of oil, uh, 10 oil and gas companies wrote this. And I'm just going to read some excerpts because every line matters. You know what we've heard? You're gouging prices. You could be drilling more. you got 9,000 leases and you're not using. So here's the letter. We understand, we certainly understand firsthand the impacts of higher costs driven by inflation and related factors can have on small business and their employees. However, there's a key challenge standing in the way of unity. The words and actions of you, meaning Mr. President, and members of your administration in particular, it's regrettable that you and your White House team have continued to mischaracterize facts regarding our industry, often maligned, uh, often maligning our motives and frankly, in some cases, advanced complete and total falsehoods. From the first day of this administration, the very tone and tenor of your administration's attitude towards oil and gas production in the U.S. is bad. And the people who make it happen have been consistently and openly hostile. For example, key members of your administration have repeatedly singled out U.S. oil and gas as the primary driver in the cause of climate change, a position that just does not square with the facts. Given other factors in the U.S. economy, as well as extraordinary harmful pollutants emitted by international bad actors like Russia and China, and that indicated oil and gas production must come to an end in the United States, a position the administration continues to take today. Unfortunately, such an approach has an obvious and demonstrable chilling effect on the energy companies, business decisions, especially ones that involve millions of dollars in infrastructure. Surely, in your over 40 years of government experience, nice. You have learned that government officials' words and deeds impact business. To the end, we hope that in the days and weeks ahead, you will return to the spirit of your inaugural address when you said, let us listen to one another, show respect to one another, and I pledge this to you. I will be president for all Americans, close quote. We believe time is now to work together to address the energy and indeed natural security needs. When I come back, I'm going to go over the specifics as they address some of the objections that the administration pretends, I believe pretends to have with the oil and gas business. They are, they are actually putting the EPA and the SEC on steroids to hurt them further, and that would keep our prices up. So you know what we do? We go and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for an electric car, which we don't have charging stations to supply, that still need coal-powered or fossil fuels to charge, and we have nowhere to put the disposable batteries. But let, why digress? Joe Biden, 78 years old. And forgot what his agenda really is anyway. When we come back, your call is 1-866-408-7669. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering... What exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations, 
or fund projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. It is fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating to me to see our president on his knees to Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. Venezuela. Maduro is almost as big a thug as Putin. And the White House admitted the other day we are in conversations with Venezuela. About what exactly? And what price do you think Maduro is going to exact from the United States to get more of his oil? This is absurd. I agree 100%. And that is Governor Christie at a New Hampshire event for candidates who are running for president. Governor Christie also went on to say someone's got to take on Trump. Nobody should get an automatic uh, berth into getting your nomination to run for president. He'll be somebody to do it. but uh, And he certainly has the answer to almost all these questions. And he's very comfortable on his feet. But he does not have the momentum now, and I don't know how he gets it back. We'll have to see how this plays out. Uh, Just to go on, and the reason why we played that bumping in is because it makes no sense. This administration is so hung up on not pumping here, even though we're in a crisis, a world crisis, on the cusp of World War III if this does not go well, because the only thing sustaining Russia is their oil and gas. Europe needs oil and gas. Now, I was talking to a key Trump official, and they said they had worked out something with Portugal to build a pipeline, natural gas pipeline, that would bring tankers right to it, who would flow right through Europe. And the only thing that was holding it up was this small area in the Pyrenees Mountains in France. And France says environmentalists are giving me a hard time. I sense that in this time of crisis, they would get through this right now because they didn't see any urgency to get off Russia oil, even though he's a bad actor. They said, still, it's cheap and it's right here and it's on a pipeline and he's never going to shut it off. Well, now they, they understand that you cannot continue to fuel, pun intended, this hatred and this anger. So now instead of pumping, they're still pushing with the, um, with the SEC and EPA, still pushing these oil and gas companies to uh, do all type. Number one, pushing these major financial institutions not to invest in oil and gas, which is not capitalistic and to me un-American. And then putting them through these gymnastics in order to, uh, in order to be able to drill. So I just wrote you, I was telling you about, about half the letter that uh, – that, that the oil companies, these trade groups, put together to address the president directly, respectfully but directly. Now, on the issue of the 9,173 outstanding permits that Jen Psaki keeps talking about, 
He said, because of the uncertainty of operating on federal lands, companies must build up sufficient inventory of permits before rigs can be contracted. The permits stay ahead of the rigs. Companies drill wells in a matter of days, and rigs are very expensive. So it's a delicate balancing act. The federal permit to drill is not the only government approval required. A rights-of-way called ROW can take years to acquire before companies can access their leases and put in natural gas gathering systems, which the pressure not to flare for regulators and investors. Most companies cannot drill before gathering lines are in place. Timely approval of ROWs would enable companies to develop sooner. So when someone sits up there and says, we have 9,000 leases you're not using, they're beginning to tell you why. And if you find it boring, tough. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Uh, the idea that they don't have enough uh, sophisticated equipment is just simply not accurate. And I'm not going to take the time to go into all the detail here, but the, for, the, the point is they have every, every equipment, every piece of equipment that makes rational sense based on our military and NATO's military for them to be able to do what they're doing. And they're wreaking havoc on, on the... Uh, on the Russian military, whether it's their tanks or their helicopters or their aircraft. Why is he so exhausted all the time? Uh, that's absolutely true. Uh, we got him equipment and people are helping him out. But I do, what about food and water? Has anyone thought about that the last three days? Uh, it looks like Maripol. It looks like Kharkiv. Uh, it looks like been pretty thoroughly starved out. And at least if they're going to fight, can we get him some nourishment? Lieutenant Colonel Alan West probably never saw a battlefield quite like this. Uh, Colonel, I hear people that have been to Iraq say right now it looks like Ukraine is worse. Yeah, it is far worse. It's good to be with you, Brian, because this is urban combat and this is the wanton and indiscriminate targeting of uh, innocent men, uh, women and children, civilians. Uh, That's something that we uh, thoroughly sought to avoid in our combat engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan. Of course, the Taliban would uh, take it to advantage to hide in civilian populations, and sometimes there would be incidents there. But I just want to ask one simple question. Where is the United Nations? I mean, when you talk about uh, you know, human rights abuses, and you talk about relief coming back in, uh, food and, and water and things of this nature. I don't see where the United Nations is right now, and I can't understand why they're not stepping up in, in a case like this where you have an international agreement, the uh, Budapest Memorandum, that has been violated by a country, Russia, and that agreement said that if any of those countries were attacked, there would be aid that would come to them in defense of their sovereignty, but none of that is occurring. And so I just don't understand why the United Nations has not stepped forward. That's a great point. At the very least, humanitarian. Are they going to shoot at a U.N. plane? 
Well, that's my point. I, I mean, if you go back and remember what was happening in Somalia with the starvation of the Somali people, we had the United Nations come in there. So what is the difference here when we see this mass refugee crisis, which is the largest since World War II in Europe? And that's why is the United States of America paying, you know, millions of dollars to the United Nations when they're absolutely doing nothing in response to this? So how about what do you think is going on in Russia? You saw that they put up the real numbers on casualties on a state-run newspaper of over 10,000, 17,000 wounded. You know, they get, they're sending thousands of body bags back. Uh, they're starting to see this now. Vladimir Putin arrests two intelligence agents who were supposed to get money and pay off the Ukrainians. But we don't know if they paid them off and kept the money or they just kept the money, period. So they've been arrested. Five generals dead. The Ukrainians say mm-hmm. many more. So and we see that they don't have the courage to fight in an urban environment only in one city, Maripol, but they're not doing it anywhere else. They're sitting on the outside. Yeah, I think one of the things you look and see is that there's this concern that there is, quote unquote, ethnic Russians there and about. Maybe they are fighting a little bit more uh, concertedly. But when you look at the interior of, uh, of Ukraine, they're not making any inroads there. And the other thing that we have always understood, going back to the old Soviet uh, army model, is it is very centrally controlled. And that's why I think you see a lot of these senior military leaders of the Russian army being killed, because they are down there at the front lines, you know, trying to get the troops to do what is necessary. As opposed to in our military, we've got great young, you know, corporals and sergeants that can take command of a situation. What's if uh, I want you to hear what Lindsey Graham said, you know, obviously, when we say these things, it's pretty clear we we're getting intelligence. Number one, they're going to try a cyber attack on us. And number two, they're they're readying reasons to use chemical and biological weapons. Obviously, the frustration level is beyond anything Vladimir Putin thought he'd be dealing with. Here's what Lindsey Graham said we should say ahead of time. Cut 16. So here's two questions the world needs to ask and answer. There's going to be a NATO summit. Here's what I would say on your show to NATO. If there's a chemical weapons attack by the Russian military against the Ukrainian people, we should impose a no-fly zone immediately because that's breaking all the rules that we've established since World War II. If Putin explodes a nuclear weapon inside of Ukraine, the radiation will affect most of Europe we should consider that attack on NATO itself. So the one thing I've learned with bullies like Putin, if you're not clear, then they will assume you're weak. So do you think we should get ahead of this and make that clear? Yeah, I do think we should get ahead of this and make it clear. But then once again, you know, words and pronunciations don't mean anything. Uh, pronouncements, I'm sorry, don't mean anything if you don't have that uh, credible deterrent that is ready to, to step forward. Uh, again, I go back to what we saw happen with the Obama red line in Syria. Nothing came of that. And that's what my concern would be here. But yet when you had the exact same thing happen on the Trump administration, uh, the Tomahawk land attack missiles went flying. And, of course, you and I talked about it last week when you had those 200-some-odd Russian paramilitary part of the Wagner group that were killed. Vladimir Putin didn't do anything because that's the type of response that he understands. So I think it's important that NATO starts to show that that strength through actions and not so much, you know, more declarations, resolutions, and pronouncements. So something else is percolating over in Geneva. We're not allowed in the room. But the Russia is representing us, so I feel great about it. Uh, mm, Iran's yeah. nuclear deal that was signed in 2015 and torn up because it sucked and they weren't holding to it. You couldn't walk on uh, snap elections and uh, excuse me, snap inspections. 
And now we find out we're getting back into it. And the New Deal is so good, they're now going to take off the terrorists, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. They are the definition of a terrorist organization. We killed Soleimani, their leader. And they get immediate relief from almost all their sanctions to the point where the most belligerent man on the planet, the Grand Ayatollah, is signing off on it. I mean, can we do anything to stop this, Colonel West? Well, uh, you know, obviously not, because if the Biden administration wants to, you know, push forward on this, that's what they're going to do. And so it's going right back to the failed policies of the Obama administration with the nuclear agreement. So just ask yourself, what message does that send? I mean, you, you just talked about Joe Biden stepping up to the plate. Our response, it's been decent, but it hasn't been strong and, and forthwith. And now you look at the fact that we are allowing Russia to be at the table to negotiate on our behalf with this Iranian nuclear agreement. And we know that uh, China is in bed with Iran, getting uh, much of their oil uh, that they ship out and export to China. And we know also that there's agreement with Russia to China. So in other words, we are talking out of both sides of our mouth. We're sending aid to Ukraine, but yet we're sitting down here and committing one of the biggest foreign policy debacles that I've ever seen to enable this new axis that is forming between Russia, China, and Iran. Now, I was confident when Netanyahu was in power, he'd find a way to upend this. He spoke to Mark Levin He's not in power now, for now. He spoke to Mark Levin Sunday, Cut 27. Got to understand, this deal not only lets Iran achieve an arsenal of nuclear bombs, it doesn't prevent them from creating the missiles to bring them to you. They're developing ballistic missiles, ultimately intercontinental ballistic missiles, that can take nuclear warheads, nuclear bombs, put them on the missile and deliver them to any place in the United States. In fact, any place in the world. That is a different world. We can't go there. It makes a hell of a difference if, if Holland has nuclear weapons or the Ayatollahs have nuclear weapons. And when people who are so suffused with hatred and with the desire for destruction, when you give them the weapons of mass death to deliver to a theater near you, they'll get there. So, I mean, it's frustrating for him. It's frustrating for us. Josh Gottheimer, Democrat, is frustrated, doesn't want to sign off on it. Evidently, there's, a, there's at least a dozen in the House and, may, and, and maybe some in the Senate. They're keeping quiet now because we don't know many details. But I never heard of a process where they do it in secret, not even directly, and we got to live with it. Well, that's why you would hope there would be full transparency in the fact that they are behind closed doors. It should make us very suspect. But let us not forget that Iran is still the number one state sponsor of Islamic terrorism in the world. And when we did lift the, the sanctions off of Iran, they did not try to improve the uh, quality of life or well-being of the Iranian people. What they did was they went out and bought more, as uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu talked about, ballistic missiles and, and weapon systems so that they could, first and foremost, uh, threaten Israel and then, of course, be a, a larger player on the, on the world stage. We see what they are doing with the Houthi rebels in Yemen. We see what they're doing, find those missiles and, and what have you into Saudi Arabia. So you just have to scratch your head about the foreign policy of the Biden administration. And where is the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, on any of this? Uh, unbelievable. I don't even know what to say him, Jake Sullivan. I find them useless. They might be bright, but they're not in America's working in America's best interest. Uh, lastly, Chris Christie is one of the first candidates. I think that's going to make it clear that he's going to be running. He was at an event in New Hampshire yesterday, and he talked about the prospect of running while Donald Trump is running. And uh, and here here's uh, what he said. Cut forty three. You know who the candidates will be. 
I don't know, Jim. I would just tell you this, that um, if they're going to get into a primary fight with Donald Trump, they better be ready because it will, it will not be tiddlywinks. It will, it will not be softball. It will be hardball. And you've got to be willing to stand up if you're going to be one of those candidates and speak your mind and tell the truth about everything. Not just about the stuff that you're comfortable telling the truth about, but telling the truth about everything. And I think you've got to make the distinction in the party. Is the party for me or is the party for us? Is the country for me or is the country for us? Um, and I think that will be the key question. And he doesn't believe anybody should get a free pass. But do you think if Donald Trump runs, the, the Republicans will have a clear field? Or who do you think from just your from the in your political circles will run against him if he decides to run? Well, I don't think there's any doubt about it uh, that, you know, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is in an incredible position. I mean, he has done incredibly well there in the uh, the state of Florida. The only thing that he would have to, of course, work on and improve upon is his foreign policy, national security bona fides. And I'm sure that uh, if he decides to run, he'll get spun up on that. And you are you for that? Well, look, I'm not saying I'm for or against. I think it is important that we have an open primary. I think it's important that we give people choices. Uh, I know that the president is still, you know, former president, still pondering whether or not he wants to run. But, you know, we have to also start thinking about how do we develop the next generation? How do we start looking at our future? We've got a better bench than the uh, progressive socialist left, the Democrat Party has, and we have to start developing that bench. Right. Uh, Trump's got the money. And if you if he doesn't get the nomination and runs, he's still got probably 40 percent of the Republican Party minimum, let's say 35 percent. So you can't win without Mm -hmm. it. There's got to be a way if you're going to lose, if you're going to beat him, you have to do it in a way that keeps him on the team. So it's a tough time. Uh, Republicans going to have an interesting situation coming up. But let's see what the midterms bring. Colonel Allen West, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. You take care, Brian. You got it. You can always follow him at Allen West. When we come back, I'll take your calls, 1-866-408-7669. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest-growing talk show in America. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. And this is the problem that I had with, like, the New York Post article on the Biden, uh, right. Hunter Biden laptop being suppressed. It's not that I'm a, a, a Trump supporter. I'm not, I didn't vote for him. I, I didn't vote for any Republican ever in my life. But you're looking at something that's real information and you're hiding it from people because you don't like the result that you think is going to come out of that information. That's not, yeah. that's not how we're supposed to be doing things. They, they, they don't yeah. just love a good story. Yeah. They love a narrative and they're willing to ignore facts yeah. to push that narrative. That's what scares me. What scares me is, uh, I mean, I think there are objective journalists that work for the Washington Post and the New York Times, and there's real solid journalists out there. But I don't necessarily know if you're getting all the information. I think <laughs> I think it's safe to say that you're there's not sure. some <laughs> is afoot. Right. And, and by the way, nobody else has covered that. So what Joe Rogan's referring to is the revelation of about the seventh paragraph of a story about Hunter Biden that said that it looks as though the laptop information, the emails were authentic and the laptop was real, was Hunter Biden's. And they thought, wait a second, that is the perfect textbook way, according to Jonathan Turley, of burying a story but trying to get it out there that what you said earlier was wrong. 
And with those 51 uh, ex-intelligence experts who came out and said this Hunter Biden story and the laptop has all the earmarks of a Russian disinformation project. Nobody picked up the phone. No one tried to find out if someone's going to authenticate some of these horrible emails. Not only the ones that talk about hookers and sex addiction and crack purchases and the pictures, and some of which no one's talked about publicly, but they're going to come out and it's as ugly as it gets. But the ones that talk about international business deals involving perhaps code names for the current president of the United States. If I was Jen Psaki, if I was any national security advisor to this president, if I was the president, I wouldn't be on a bike over the weekend. Shouldn't have been on a bike anyway. If you had to work out, stationary bike. How's that sound? Got a huge war over there. It could be World War III, but don't worry about it. Finding out details what these emails say, because you're going to have to get specific answers. There's a theory out there, and it's hard to, uh, it's hard to dissuade me from it, that it's not true, that they're about to indict Hunter Biden on all types of uh, tax violations. He's already had to pay a million dollars. And if you're on the wrong side of that, where you said the information that the IRS used was authentic, and you said, oh, that wasn't authentic, it looks worse than it actually has to be. So the Times could say, yeah, yeah. at first we thought it was Russian information, but we looked at it, and it seems to be real. That's what you concern. What you concern you is the New York Post writes a legitimate story, and they shelved it. And if I went to retweet it, they would suspend my account. Kaylee McEnany, the press secretary, they would suspend their account. If a talk show host wanted to forward that story, they would suspend their account. So they would ban them from social media. They would eventually ban the former president from social media. That's what should concern you. So Bill Barr, who said the same thing with me on Saturday, said this about the laptop at the time. He knew it was not Russian disinformation, said it, but no one covered it. Cut 35. I was very disturbed during the debate when, when uh, candidate Biden lied to the American people about the laptop. He squarely confronted with the laptop, and he suggested that it was Russian disinformation and pointed to the letter written by some intelligence people that was baseless, uh, which he knew was, was a lie. And uh, I, was, I was shocked by that. And fortunately, the DNI came out and said, no, it's, it's, it's not disinformation. The FBI said the same thing. The media ignored it. Uh, so when you're talking about interference in an election, I, I can't think of anything more uh, than that. Yeah, either can I. Uh, so that is it. And they shelved that in October and November happens and that everything goes quiet. And you, I played all these montages of all these uh, networks and other places saying this is heartily part Jake Tapper. It's this is horrible, too disgusting to repeat. Uh, but it's Russian disinformation. Hunter Biden writes a book and never even denies that's his laptop. Molly Hemingway, outraged by this. Uh, she's with The Federalist, now editor. Cut 34. So this isn't just Hunter Biden. This is Joe Biden. And the media know that. And that's why they lied about this, covered it up, engaged in a conspiracy with tech companies to make sure that this was not something that voters could know about before 2020's election, because they knew if they knew that Joe Biden would not be elected president. So Joe Rogan, as he said, you heard it, not a Republican, never voted for a Republican, didn't vote for Trump, said this should be scary to everybody. I agree. MSNBC did two seconds on it. How you cover a story in two seconds, I don't know. CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC, zero seconds. The president's son has emails about international deals with China, Romania, Russia, and the Ukraine that could implement implicate him. And you don't cover the story? How do you live with yourself? You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Make sure you watch One Nation Saturdays at 8 o'clock and keep it here.
Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade coming to you from New York, but heard around the country, heard around the world. We're watching the confirmation hearings day two, really, of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. She wants to be the next Supreme Court justice to replace a person she clerked for, uh, Justice Breyer. So far, her biography is great. Her answers seem to be strong. She's no doubt about it. She's smart. Uh, We'll see how it goes. I mean, she doesn't want to answer any questions. It's got to be frustrating to Jonathan Turley. I'll talk to him shortly. Then one of the funniest people you'll ever meet, uh, James Murray. Uh, from Impractical Jokers. We'll take a little break. He's got a brand new book out. We'll talk about that. And then Barney and Company will do a simulcast. So a lot to do. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The problem with the deal is uh, it's badly constructed from the start. It doesn't say, well, we'll lift sanctions off Iran depending on Iran's change of behavior. It says we'll lift sanctions off Iran depending on a change in the calendar automatically so iran can continue its terrorism yeah that's true uh that's benjamin netanyahu talking over the weekend worst deal yet the administration has to cut such a bad nuke deal even the ayatollah of iran likes it gory tea deals that even have fellow dems alarmed and not gonna vote for it but will we even have a say as the american people number two our energy policy in this country subject to is something that i can entirely blame on joe biden and is a national embarrassment I'd rather buy half a million barrels of oil a day from Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota than from Vladimir Putin. I don't think that's all that hard to figure out. That is uh, so true. President Biden says his economy is rolling when it comes to gas prices. Hey, oil companies, stop gouging and start drilling. This time, uh, accusations are answered by you and the companies uh, be vilified. Just warning the White House you're not going to like it because they hit back. They hit back hard specifically. Number one. One reason that the Russians have been frustrated and and in terms of the progress that they haven't made, um, obviously a big reason is the Ukrainian resistance. But they're having trouble with command and control on the ground. Uh, So they've, they've made missteps of their own. That is John Kirby, the war. Moscow, uh, uh, as they shockingly admit, have now have over 10,000 deaths already. About 17,000 wounded. They put it in the national newspaper. Meanwhile, they're arresting intel agents and they're targeting civilians like true cowards. Every time they match it with the Ukrainians, they're losing. Where is this thing heading? And we'll discuss that in a matter of moments. But right now, we're watching Judge, uh, Judge Jackson take some questions from uh, Republicans and Democrat senators. The confirmation seems inevitable. Jonathan Turley joins us now. Jonathan, is there anything that you've gleaned so far? Well, the hearing is going as we expected. She's handling it well. She's a very personable, likable uh, uh, nominee. Uh, The Republicans have already raised a couple of possible contradictions, and those weren't really clearly answered. Uh, Chairman Grassley, for example, asked why, as a district court judge, you had no problem with answering whether you follow the so-called living constitution model of uh, uh, judging, and the, yet as an appellate uh, um, nominee, you refused to answer that question. She actually did not explain that contradiction. Uh, she did say that she doesn't think the Constitution changes by the day, um, but there's still a lot of questions about judicial philosophy. 
Um, much of these hearings are sort of frustrating because it's not clear what the standard is. For example, uh, Judge Jackson refused to answer whether she uh, supports court packing. That's the same position taken by Judge Barrett, now Justice Barrett, in her nomination. But it's still, there's a question in both of those confirmations of what the standard is. I mean, Judge Jackson had no problem saying that she would answer whether uh, we should have cameras in the courtroom, for example, uh, or whether international law is binding in most areas. Um, and yet, um, she said, as did Justice Barrett, it wouldn't be appropriate for her to talk about uh, whether uh, Congress could order court packing, whether that's a good idea. Um, the question is, why are some questions barred and some are not? Um, on court packing, sitting justices have spoken publicly, including the one she will replace. So, you know, members may still get back to this and ask, look, if, do you believe that Justice Breyer violated judicial uh, uh, ethics by publicly taking a position that you just refused to take in the hearing? Right. Uh, and, th and that's uh, key. Uh, and which is going to be no hell to pay for that. So we're going to have less and less substance in this and more and more background checks pointing out, you know, what somebody might have done controversial. Now, for the most part, Jonathan, He's he's replacing a liberal with a they're replacing a liberal with a liberal. You don't expect a lot of fireworks, do you? No. The question is going to be how the Republicans handle this. What the White House would like to see is a bipartisan vote. Um, but the Democrats in the last few nominations have made clear that they would vote against Republican nominees solely on their judicial philosophy, solely because they are conservative in how they interpret the Constitution. On that standard, uh, it may be difficult for Republican senators to vote for Judge Jackson. Uh, you know, she clearly uh, takes a much more liberal approach to the Constitution. Uh, we'll see how much detail uh, can, can be added uh, to that question in these hearings. But if she's treated in the same way that Justice Barrett was, then these Republican senators could say, I, I'm simply voting against you, not because I don't think you're qualified, not because I don't think you're a good person, but because, as our, our other colleagues voted in the Barrett case, I disagree with your judicial philosophy. Uh, Jonathan Turley with us. Jonathan, the other thing you've been writing about is what's going on with uh, Hunter's laptop. And is your theory uh, the same as we're hearing other people speculate that the reason why the New York Times goes on the record and says that it looks in about the eighth paragraph, you said it's textbook. I had to bury a story um, uh, of their story saying Hunter but laptop uh, emails look authentic is a way for them to get on the record before an indictment's handed down because the IRS is doing an investigation. I do. I think that, you know, the there FBI. is a, a view of many that uh, an indictment is possible and even likely um, the New York Times couldn't risk an indictment coming down when it would likely rely upon, to some extent, the laptop. So they finally had to acknowledge what has been pretty much known for about 17 months, that the laptop was authentic. You know, when the story broke and when it was barred by Twitter and, and basically uh, um, banned from the pages of most newspapers – um, there was this glaring contradiction. You know, some people who were uh, recipients of those emails had already authenticated them. 
Also, Hunter Biden's uh, what many of us view as influence peddling schemes were already well known. The Biden family was notorious for influence peddling. And so, you know, the New York Times has been struggling to ignore this uh, for 17 months. But there's nothing like an indictment that concentrates the mind. I mean, they couldn't they couldn't risk an indictment coming down, citing this laptop and having to both report that Hunter Biden's indicted and that it was based in part on the laptop. So I want you to hear uh, Joe Rogan, uh, Mr. Everyman, on this very story. Uh, and I think he, he I think he should underline why people who don't want to get involved in this, who say this doesn't matter, why it does matter. Cut 30. And this is the problem that I had with, like, the New York Post article on the Biden, uh, right. the Hunter Biden laptop being suppressed. It's not that I'm a, a, a Trump supporter. I'm not, I didn't vote for him. Yeah. I, I didn't vote for any Republican ever in my life. But you're looking at something that's real information and you're hiding it from people because you don't like the result that you think is going to come out of that information. That's not – yeah. That's not how we're supposed to be doing things. They, they, they don't yeah. just love a good story. Yeah. They love a narrative, and they're willing to ignore facts yeah. to push that narrative. That's what scares me. What scares me is, uh, I mean, I think there are objective journalists that work for the Washington Post and New York Times, and there's real solid journalists out there. But I don't necessarily know if you're getting all the information. I think <laughs> I think it's safe to say that you're there's not sure. some <laughs> is afoot. Right. Do you think that's going to link that 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 revelation is going to go beyond Republican circles in your in your estimation? Well, if if there's an indictment, I think it's going to be very hard uh, for the mainstream media to keep this united front. And, you know, part of the I think that the Biden camp was really brilliant in how they handled this. I mean, this is how Houdini made his elephant disappear. Houdini knew the audience wanted the elephant to disappear. And the Biden campaign knew that the media wanted the scandal to go away. And so they did. And the problem is that an indictment makes you see the elephant. There's no denying it anymore. So the media is going to have to deal with this. But you'll notice something interesting about what the what the New York Times did. They said, you know what? It turns out, you know, our bad. This was authentic all, all for you know all the time. Um, but then they did, they stopped. They didn't say, so now that it's clearly authentic, what do the emails say? Who do they implicate? You'll notice it just stops on a dime, and it's so absolutely bizarre. It's sort of like, you know, we found out that the president committed murder, and then just have a period, not mention who was, who was murdered, what was the crime. Well, you know, there's what these emails describe at a minimum is an influence peddling scheme worth millions of dollars involving foreign companies and foreign countries and shady figures. It may also indicate criminal conduct, and it implicates not just Hunter Biden, not just his uncle, but also his father. And that's why no one wants to get beyond that period. They're, and for the moment, they're stuck on, okay, they're authentic. Don't ask me anything further. But if they come out with an indictment, they're going to have to cover the story and they'll try to make it about addiction. And I don't think they'll be successful. I also worry about anybody that knows that you have somebody that you know, friends, family, that has an addiction problem. Why would you put them in a high stress international business deal situation 
with so many variables that half the people end up arrested or missing, including the person he was dealing with in China and including Devin Archer, his partner, who's in jail, I think, or about to go to jail. So if you're a good parent or a friend, the last thing you want to do is cause tension. Usually people with addictions get stressed out during holidays. Yeah, the addiction issue actually works against their narrative. And this is something that Hunter Biden himself has played up. He, in his book, he says, I was a hopeless drug uh, um, addict um, all the way up to my, my father's presidential campaign. And everyone really showered him with praise for his bravery of admitting that. There's a problem. He himself is describing himself as a hopeless addict during the periods when people are giving him millions of dollars. Why? Why would these foreign companies give a hopeless addict who says he can't even remember who he slept with or where he was millions of dollars? So it cuts against the first claim in the media that Hunter Biden, sure, he had connections, but he really was an attorney and he probably did bring some value. Now the argument is he was this hopeless addict who was stumbling through life but just happened to get millions of dollars because people wanted him on these boards. Why? <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll add that and add this. He got a woman pregnant. I don't, I'm so sure she did something in a living. I, I'm not really having checked her a tax form, but talked to her, talked to her about everything, lied about the relationship, but talked to her about everything. That woman and that woman talked to the IRS and the FBI. And that woman's attorney is the one who came out and said, this guy's getting indicted. Yeah, and, you know, it's a very curious thing for the media, right, because they've been saying, you know, whenever they've dealt with this in limited fashion, that really there's no tax issue here. He paid his taxes. People don't get charged with this. And in the meantime, these people are going into the grand jury with files of information. And the damaging aspect of this is that he was not only refusing to admit that he was the father and to pay child support, Um, But – and this was going even through the presidential campaign of his father. But he was at the same time, according to these laptop emails, the recipient of millions of dollars. (laughs) And so they also called in a former girlfriend of his about how she was able to use credit cards, some of which may have been connected to these accounts. So all of this is really – damaging. So, yeah, he may be indicted for a tax issue, and the media will say, well, this isn't a big deal. People get indicted for tax issues. But there's also questions about international uh, transactions, uh, unreported income um, that have to be addressed. But the big issue that the media is struggling to ignore is that at a minimum, these emails are describing an extensive influence peddling scheme something that the Biden family has been repeatedly accused of. And that's the one thing that they don't want to talk about. And then the 51 intelligence agents who, if they had had any qualifications, would know some of what they were writing and still would go out and say, this looks like the, all the classic earmarks of a Russian uh, disinformation operation. They didn't say this, but there's all the earmarks from Clapper to Mike Morrell to, uh, to Michael Hayden, you'll recognize a lot. John Brennan, of course, you recognize a lot of these names. So their credibilities absolutely should be in question. Uh, John, uh, Jonathan Turley, thanks for staying all over this. I know it's a big day for you. You're watching the hearings, taking my phone calls. I'm truly honored.
<laughs> Great to talk to you. Thanks. Go get him. Uh, back in a moment, you listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think it's clear. You can see it from the response of the people of Mariupol. I mean, Mariupol is really the Aleppo and the Srebrenica of of our time. And uh, what is happening there is, is just atrocity after atrocity. And yet the people, the 400,000 Mariupol people, they do not surrender. They still stay strong. They're saying, OK, we are ready to endure this because at the end of the day, we want to continue living as a free people. That is so cool. That's Mariupol. They refuse to surrender. The place has been destroyed, but they'll build it back up once they defeat the Russians. And hopefully the aura that they are a superpower. Walker listening on WABC in Jersey City. Hey, Walker. Hey, Brian. Uh, you know, this uh this Hunter Biden laptop business is uh, uh, it's perplexing to me how the media do not have any curiosity about it. You know, know, they have more curiosity about finding dogs that had COVID or deaths from hydroxychloroquine. Or did the Trump organization inflate their property value like everybody who ever sells a home or a shed? Uh, and then they're doing a big investigation on that, breathlessly being reported a former president's children on their uh, on their uh, real estate deals. But you have a guy dealing with using his father's name with other nations who becomes president. Well, they have emails showing that his father could, in fact, be implicated. Who is president with countries that are now at war? Who's going to Brussels as president? How could you not be interested in that? When we come back, and this is no joke, Impractical Jokers, Superstar... Murr. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're not convinced life is getting back to normal, then you don't know who's in studio right now. If you're not, if you're smart enough to get Fox Nation, James Murr Murray. Uh, writer, executive producer of the hit show, Impractical Jokers, author of a brand new book, Alan Summer. Um, he's also um, he's also a previous b- a bestseller. So he's had a lot of success. Alan Summer kicks off an exciting three book series. So you have another. This is a first of a three book series. Yes, it's it's, it's Alien Summer. It's a, a typo on your sheet, Brian. It's 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 Area Fifty One interns Alien Summer. Although Alan Summer is a fantastic, fantastic. No, that is my fault. That is my fault. <laughs> Who is Alan Summer? <laughs> I'm like it sounds mysterious. Alan and Alien. So I blame myself for that. Um, so, so it's, Yes, Alan Summers sweeping bookshelves right now. Go pick so, it up. I really feel bad. Do you think people are going already to Barnes and Noble saying, "I'm just here for I Alan Summers"? Currently, across the nation, there's a raid on Barnes and Nobles trying to find the non-existent book Alan Summer. <laughs> so, is this any good? Uh, yeah, it, right. It is. You're a prolific author, right? Of course. No, your other series is great. Why start a new series? Uh, because this is a children's book, our first ever middle grade kids uh, book. Uh, about Area 51. And so you're talking about like eight to 
13? Yeah, it's like 8 to 12, I'd say, is the, you know, the, the right age range. And, uh, and it's about a group of kids whose parents just so happen to work at Area 51, the famed uh, location, uh, and they land a summer internship. And, of course, the first day of the internship, all heck breaks loose, all the uh, aliens get out, the adults get captured, and it's up to the kids to save the day. It's a three-book series from Penguin Random House, and you can pick it up now. We'll go to area51novel.com, and I'll autograph one and send it your way. Now, what do you know uh, about that audience, 8 to 13? Do they watch your show? Uh, uh, that's our fan, but you know. I mean, uh, gosh, 8 to 13? Yeah, I, I mean, when I met your family, they, you, your kids were, I mean. My, my son was in college. Now, right. but Impractical Jokers started in 1973. That's, right? So, <laughs> that's right. We've been on TV for 43 years now. Longer than Wonderama. <laughs> that's right. right. That's that is right. incredible. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I met your kids. They were still in diapers when I met your kids. Right. Um, I would not have introduced you to my children until I realized you were a success. <laughs> I waited for you to break through. <laughs> yeah. So, Impractical Jokers. By the way, you're back on li- live tour, too. Yes, indeed. Uh, Murr Live. I- I'm playing uh, Boston at the Wilbur Theater in two weeks. I'm at the Paramount in Long Island uh, on... Uh, uh, June 10th. And this weekend I'm in Louisville and Toledo and touring all over. You can go to MurLive.com to get tickets. Now, Paramount is about 15 minutes, 20 minutes from my house. Oh my God. Let's uh, dinner beforehand. Uh, don't you have to concentrate? Uh, no. I mean, you're that relaxed before what we show? do for a living requires very little concentration, <laughs> bro. You know that. You've been to No, set. but when, are you, when you're on your loan, how is that different from being with the guys uh, on TV? Uh, it's similar. Well, uh, there's a giant screen behind me, and I play videos I just shot for the live show. But the coolest thing we're able to do now, and you'll see it at the Paramount or the Wilbur, is I'm able to do Impractical Jokers live. So I stick an earpiece in someone's ear, send them out outside of the theater, is being beamed into the theater on screen, and they can hear me on the microphone and the audience can hear what I'm saying, and I get to tell them what to say and do live right there in person. Wow, that's fantastic. So uh, Area 51 is the first of a three-book series. Yes, sir. And it's called Alien Summer. Yes, yes. Uh, not yes. Alien Summer. Yeah, my, it's me and my co-author, Alan Summer. <laughs> that is uh, not we true. really worked hard on it. Um, so we have to have you back, obviously, uh, on One Nation. Do you think, uh, Pete, should I put him on One Nation? Is he, he is the whole nation. The whole nation. Bring the whole Alan nation. with him. Right. Uh, one nation on Saturday. <laughs> okay. You're following my career. I, I, right. do, I follow it. I, we have a, a dartboard in my house right. that's, of your career That's path. not what I was hoping for. At least make it the Velcro balls <laughs> instead of the dartboard. So Impractical Joker starts a brand new season. You're taping right after this. I, I leave from here to go film. April 2nd. Uh, so the big... April 2nd, we see the first one on television. Yes, absolutely. It comes okay. on, I mean, immediately after the NCAA Final Four game, uh, we get simulcast on TBS, True TV, right. and, and uh, TNT. And I'm an Bash fan. It's one of the few things uh, that the whole family can watch. Yes. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, to be able to put something on where no one argues to say, turn that off, and even the repeats during the pandemic – Probably saved so many families. I hope so, and probably broke a few up, too. Right. I, mean, I don't been... think so. It's <laughs> yeah. a unifying factor because you make yourself uh, the embarrassment. You don't look to embarrass people. Yes, correct. Uh, we, we, we go right from here to go film, and we're filming a bit today where people are coming in to test new products, like a taste test kind of thing, but we come in as a doctor having to notify them legally about the possible side effects. So some of the, the side effects, of course, are crazy and written by the other guys. How much pressure is on the producers and how much are you guys? I know in the original, when it first started, you guys. Yeah. But now you have to come up with more and more original variants of this. How much pressure is on the producers? There's yeah. more variants than COVID. Right. No, it's point. unbelievable. Yeah. That, we keep spitting it in new ways. And the vaccine doesn't work. It just doesn't like COVID. work. There's no vaccine against impractical jokers. Right. We've tried. So do you, is, do you feel as though you can sit back now and say, I'm a, a proven success? 
come up with a concept? I mean, we've been coasting for 11 years now. Right. You know that, Brian. Right. That's been the rumor. <laughs> yeah. It's been the rumor. It's, it's substantiated. It's true. So do producers have any input? No, I mean, so much of the show is improvised. Right. You know, uh, like, like, like when I, I'm on tour and I'm telling somebody what to do, it's pure improv. I, I look around with the camera, see what's going on. Last week we uh, were in Austin, Texas performing, and I sent uh, somebody out in the field and across the street from the theater. It just so happened to be a wedding, a full wedding going on at a venue across the street. So I had the guy go across the street, stand on a table, and shout that the wedding was off. It's all canceled. Please leave. And it's all improv. You know? is it, is, and that is who? Th- that is a, the guy that opens for me on tour. I sent him out, and he's the he's the has to bear the brunt of my and, and the, the best thing about it. You do not know what's going to happen. Have no idea, right? Uh, so Joe's not going to be on the show. No, but the way the show works now is that every episode ends with a different celebrity guest. So the season premieres Eric Andre, the comedian. We have Brooke Shields. We're filming with tomorrow. We had Chris Jericho, Wu, uh, Method Man from Wu Tang. Every every episode, Colin Jost. Every episode, a different celebrity at the end. And and do you find that they're fans, or a lot? Of, do you don't have to brief them on what the show's about? Like, do you find that they're all in on the concept? Yes and no. We had David Cross, the comedian, on last week. He punished me. He had heard of the show but had never seen it. Really? So we sent him a few of the clips. He watched the clip of me being an astronaut in the space station. Uh, zooming to kids in their classroom and they had me rotating upside down so it looked like I was floating in zero gravity and he was crying, laughing, watching it and agreed that day, that moment to be on the show. See, I, I would find that you'd have to, these people have to understand where you came from, the whole story about you guys in high school and what you were able to improv and Came pull over out. on the boat, saw the Statue of Liberty, right? you know, uh, immigrants coming to America. See, I didn't good. even know this. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I'm know not that talking about us, I'm talking about our grand, great-grandparents. Right, yeah. which is, I don't wouldn't go that far back. I would stick with more your life. <laughs> got it. Got right. it. I, I don't know how you know. You're a historian. You write a lot of historical novels, and uh, you know, uh, I didn't know how far back you wanted me. to Right. Go. So that's our fault. But it is life. I know yeah. you're not used to working like that. But maybe if it was Impractical Jokers, brought to you by Twenty Three and Me. Yeah. Then it sure. would be. Then it would make total sense. Got it. Got right. it. Oh, I'm trying to get you a sponsorship. Right deal. now. So wh- at what point during this conversation do you ask me to be one of the celebrities to come on Impractical I, Jokers? So, am I talking too much? We have. We keep getting shot down by your agent it, it, saying Brian uh, underlined will never be on Impractical <laughs> Jokers this- or on. We don't know which one it is. <laughs> yeah. How do you think I would do? I, I tell you what, I would love to try one day on Fox. But and not Friends, convinced I'll do one day on Fox and Friends. My dream is to send you out, and I'm in your ear, or vice versa. I'll do it. I'll be the the recipient of your instructions. One day, please give me my dream. It's like a a make a wish for me. But what makes you? Are you ill? I'm not. Oh. I'm not. But one day I will. So be. that's totally different from make a you wish. You have a good forty. It's, it's very different. It, it, it's, it's, it's make totally, my wish. I mean, it's, make, yeah. Can you rephrase that, please? Yes. Yeah. It's make my wish foundation. Right. It's not make a wish. And it's all about you. It's all about me. It's just things that I want to do. Right. Understood. Uh, I would. I think that it's great. I, I'm just very curious to see. So you guys start this this impractical jokers where you put yourself in these most awkward scenes possible, and every time seems like the worst, and that shows you have acting ability. And then when you start emerging and having success, and then these celebrities start recognizing you. Yeah. What is that like? What a great feeling. It's overwhelming. It's incredible. By the way, I was just co-hosting Good in New York, and you've never seen this. And I have it, I've just realized I still have it in my pocket. There was an episode of Impractical Jokers where Q, unbeknownst to me, had been growing his hair out for like six months uh, to like 14, 15 inches long. They shaved off his hair and made it into a wig and made me wear it on the TV show for six months of filming. And it's still my passport. 
photo. It is not. Cus- I, I showed it on. <laughs> you can't. How does it? You're not going to get into. It's you're not going to get back in the country. I look like a see something, say something. Right, right? Can you show it at least up to the camera I, so I will, do we pretend? There you go. I'll try to. There you go. Um, I'm sure we can't make that out. But so you did that. Yeah. That's your passport photo. It's my passport photo. And my driver's license, of course, still has no eyebrows, which you've seen before. Which I've seen before. Yeah. Have you had problems with this going into clubs? Or- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know how you go into clubs and show your passport? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we don't like foreigners. What kind of clubs As a country, these? we're no longer a melting pot. Yeah. It's get out. Uh, so let me let me ask you, what's married life like? That's fantastic. What is the biggest fight you've guys had? Uh, it, it's never uh, anything big. It right. always blows over immediately. Uh, we, uh, we, I'll tell you what, uh, what makes, uh, every day I'm married, I, I'm so happy because and she's got a better sense of humor than I do. Get out of here. She's hysterically funny. Right. Uh, you don't just guess me all the time. So that laughter is the cure for everything. But does she think you're funny? No. That's what makes it work. <laughs> there can only be one. <laughs> so that doesn't think you're funny? No, it, it's a good balance, yin and yang. Right. So yeah. you think she's funny, but you're getting paid to be funny, and she doesn't think you're funny. That's the irony of so, it. So you know that uh, Seinfeld story that he's told on uh, The Tonight Show? I know the music's coming in. He said, I told my parents I'm going to do stand-up, and they left the room. They will come back and goes, we're going to support you, but. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney. Don't just hang in there on your investments. Call Talon Wealth and get peace of mind with active management of your portfolio. Dial pound 250 and save financial plan. Investment advisory services offered through Talon Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Hey, welcome back, everyone. We're about to join Stewart in a banner of moments, and we'll talk a little politics. He had Donald Trump on yesterday. I know that's important. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, what Chris Christie said yesterday. Basically, uh, Donald to nobody should have a clear path to the nomination, even if somebody was president before or had the nomination before. Let's listen in. Oh, look at the time, how it rolls on to you. 10.51, and here is... Brian Kilmeade. Brian, yesterday I was joined by former President Trump. I told him that looking back to the elections of 2020 is not a good strategy, and he disagreed. What say you? You're 100% right. I don't know anybody that thinks it's a good idea to look back. Maybe Steve Bannon, who, by the way, calls everyone in this station stupid except uh, two people, Jesse and Tucker. I don't think that's true, but I'm going to have to get his third source. Um, <laughs> So I, I think that anybody who uh, is for or if, anyone who's against Donald, uh, against Donald Trump wants him to keep talking about 2020. Anybody that wants to make sure he doesn't get the nomination or be president again wants him to continue to talk about 2020. Anyone who thought he did a lot of good things in a very difficult circumstance, and yes, some of the stuff he brought on himself, but uh, within the Russian hoax and it was uh, over his head over the last two years and the constant being harangued over his taxes and even being harangued now, uh, mm. I understand it. He still was able to do some extraordinary things, as you're seeing uh, this administration just fl- flub every foreign policy challenge after time after time. But uh, 2020, nobody cares. And I was talking to Bill Barr. You did, right. too. I mean, it doesn't matter. If there was something there, Bill Barr would have turned this, this place upside down. But there was nothing there. He said you had a clown show uh, full of lawyers, a room full of lawyers. They didn't know what they were talking about. And that's why they put together a plan that maybe duped you, too. But most of his lawyers didn't want any part of it. 
Right. Now, there's one other element which I did not raise with former President Trump, and that is his demeanor, his approach to politics, his harshness, the words he uses, the criticism that he lays on people. I don't think that goes down well with a lot of voters. Now, I didn't say this to him, but I think he should knock that off if he wants to run and win in 2024. Touchy subject, Brian. You address it? A couple of things. Uh, you know, Chris Christie was speaking in New Hampshire yesterday. It looks like he's going to run, and he made it clear nobody should get a clear path to the nomination. But I can't see someone going at it with Trump, dropping the gloves, and then them walking away, because what Trump walks away is with 38 to 42 percent of the Republican vote. That's great, but it's not going to get you the nomination, yeah. but it's not going to get you the presidency. So th something's got to change. Number okay. two is it's so easy to figure this out, Stuart. The president walked away with more votes than any Republican in the history of the country, right? In impossible circumstances, gets hit with a pandemic, and all the challenges that happened with this, uh, with the, with not knowing what this was, the friction with Anthony Fauci, telling the country to shut down, stopping the economy as we saw it, having a Russia investigation where it was totally trumped up along the way, and he still gathered more votes than any he Republican did. in the history of the country. That's true. That's true. And, he had to, and he actually could not do what he does best, attract big crowds in big rallies for at least two-thirds of the campaign. That's what I'd be saying. I want a rematch if Joe Biden can do it. That's the way to win. Because in America, like Andrew Jackson, the best example, he got beat even though he had more votes. He got beat because of the House of Representatives gave it to John Quincy Adams. He not only showed up for the inaugural, he showed up for the party after and then beat him twice. There you go. Uh, i got a bone to pick with you. Larry Kudlow was on your show, Fox and Friends, yesterday. Yeah. And apparently, you just couldn't contain your excitement. Watch this again. It's you. Roll it. Host of Kudlow at 4 o'clock every single day. A big ratings hit. You are the hypersonic <laughs> missile of Fox business. So, Larry Kudlow is the hypersonic missile of Fox business, right. and I'm not. I would suggest that Ainsley and Steve on Fox and Friends are the real hypersonic missiles of Fox News. You want to counter that? Yes, because hypersonic <laughs> missile isn't the most powerful weapon Larry thinks it is, because Larry's from a different generation than you. You're much younger. Uh, he thinks hypersonic is the biggest missile. But intercontinental hypersonic uh, global is the best missile. And that is what I hold for you. Your and, thoughts on meandering, right. Brian. Meandering. And that's why you, you're, you're, even, you're in a faster missile that's even harder to stop with the best defensive shield ever. Huh? Something that Space Force can't even contain. That's what I look at Stuart Varney as. Excellent. You've, regained, you've just regained your credibility, just like that. Well, it's Snap a wonderful American-built series. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Learned about the car this morning. Okay, time's up. Uh, Brian, thank you very much indeed. We right. do hope to see you next week. Okay, Mr. Hypersonic Inter Intercontinental Interplanetary <laughs> We'll be watching you on One Nation, Saturday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Fox I can News. Ask. Still ahead. Florida Congressman Brian... Wow, I did not know this rivalry was so fast and furious. Did you know that it was coming? I had no idea. Had I was no just hoping idea. you weren't going to say Scud missile. Now, if I was Vladimir Putin, I would have fired everybody. Right? Yes. Because it's never my fault. But I am not the Vladimir Putin of radio. No, that's true. I, I would just fire Eric, though. Right. Eric wouldn't leave. No, that's true. He, he would be like the guy from Office Space where staple. staple. He's going to sit here. Right. Or uh, George Costanza kept coming. Uh, that's right true. after. That's true. But I would never consider uh, because uh, George Costanza talked and Eric doesn't talk to me for the most part. So he that's what makes special totally sound different. Absolutely. Uh, let's go to Gary. Listen to WNDB in Daytona. Hey, Gary. 
Okay, that long pause makes me think we haven't connected. The phones aren't connected. All right, we're still on the business channel. That's okay. Um, quick thing uh, to remind everybody. Uh, on One Nation, that, you want to pop that up again? All right, let me try hey, to squeeze Ryan. this in. Gary, WNDB, Daytona. Hey, Gary. Yeah. How you doing, Brian? Yeah, what's on your mind? No, two, two quick things. I just want to get your take on this. Katanji Brown, it was interesting. She mentioned that she doesn't want to delve into any answers or have to answer anything that's political, which means they might Everything. as well fold up shop and stop that today. And earlier today, when you were talking to Admiral Kirby, it was amazing. I, he, can never, he completely pivots. When you talk about uh, not being in the room with Iran, he, he pivots exactly away from that. And then when you talk about Anything to do with the mix, again, pivots completely away from it. Yeah, it's frustrating, Gary, because I'm friends with him. I spoke in front of his class, too, in college, and it's not his policies. So when you got it, that's just a position. If it was Secretary of Defense, it would be different. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. Kevin Roberts at the bottom of the hour. He's president of the Heritage Foundation. I got to get his take. And, you know, I got to be honest. I'm so concerned about this Iranian deal. He wrote about it, talked about it. I want to get his take on what this is basically going to uh, bring them back into the uh, family of nations, allow them to sell their oil, allow their oppressive society to exist, abandoning all those people that risked their lives to stand up against their brutal Islamic regime, and now allow them to eventually get a nuclear weapon. Because in the uh, in the uh, JCPOA, it says that this agreement disappears. It's done. Ambassador Alex Vershbaugh will be with us, too. Uh, NATO Deputy Secretary, former NATO Deputy Secretary General, uh, up until from 2012 to 2016, and U.S. Ambassador to uh, Russia and South Korea, and Assistant Secretary of Defense, currently a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. But first, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The problem with the deal is uh, it's badly constructed from the start. It doesn't say, well, we'll lift sanctions off Iran depending on Iran's change of behavior. It says, we'll lift sanctions off Iran depending on a change in the calendar, automatically. So Iran can continue its terrorism. Uh, That is unbelievable. Benjamin Netanyahu laid it out on Sunday with Mark Levin. Worst deal yet, the administration has cut such a bad nuke deal. Even the Ayatollah of Iran loves it. Can't wait to sign it. The details coming your way. So bad that Democrats in the House have come out and said they don't think they can vote for it. Not all. Hopefully enough. Number two. Our energy policy in this country, subject to, is something that I can entirely blame on Joe Biden and is a national embarrassment. I'd rather buy half a million barrels of oil a day from Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota than from Vladimir Putin. President, I don't think that's all that hard to figure out. President Biden says the economy is rolling, and when it comes to gas prices, hey, oil companies, stop gouging and start drilling. This time his accusations are answered by you individually and the companies he vilifies to justify, uh, to justify, they they come out and they tell the White House it is your fault, and we, they get specifics. Number one, one reason 
that the Russians have been frustrated and, and in terms of the progress that they haven't made, um, obviously a big reason is the Ukrainian resistance. But they're having trouble with command and control on the ground. Uh, so they've, they've made missteps of their own. Moscow, as they shockingly admit, have about 10,000 dead. They put that, that on national media quickly retracted it, haphazardly trying to crush every city, but only actually fighting in one, aiming at civilian targets like true cowards. For Ukraine, a fight they must survive and 100% capable of winning. Uh, when will the West realize this? Let's bring in Ambassador Bershbo. Ambassador, uh, from the Russian perspective, how would you say this 26-day operation is going? Uh, hi, Brian. Uh, clearly, this operation has been an embarrassment for the Russians. Uh, they miscalculated in just about every respect in terms of the planning, the logistics, the command and control. They don't have disciplined forces. Putin believed his own propaganda that, the, that Ukraine is not a real nation and that the, he believed that they were going to uh, basically surrender immediately and welcome the Russians with open arms. All these things were entirely wrong. And, of course, the Ukrainians' amazing resistance, no one could have expected it to be as, as, as strong. I mean, we knew they would resist, but they've been so skillful about it. It shows that we, uh, we actually uh, did a lot of good in help, helping train and equip their forces in the last eight years. And some people so let you down. It's not well for the Russians, but it doesn't mean yeah. that they're, 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 they're finished. Uh, they still have a lot of additional capability, additional personnel they can bring in from other parts of Russia. So I wouldn't say uh, we should be too optimistic uh, just yet. Don't declare victory. Oh, I, yeah, I don't think they're close to declaring victory. My hope is they, they as much as I want to see the, the, the death and destruction stop, I think stopping too early would let the Russians off the hook and let them occupy too great a portion of Ukraine where they could actually delude themselves into thinking this is a victory. I want to hear you. I want to everyone to hear from a guy that has stepped up in a way not many people expected. That's President Zelensky. This is his state of the game. Cut four. Our 26th day of full-scale war is over. After eight years of aggression in the east of our state, the enemy is slowly trying to move, to go on the offensive somewhere, to capture our roads somewhere, to cross the river somewhere. The Ukrainian army, well done, repels these attempts and holds back the occupiers. And if you look at Kharkiv, as as destroyed as it is and as much as they need supplies, it stands in Ukrainian hands. Uh, same with Kiev, the capital. Obviously, uh, Lviv is not touched for the most part. And then you have down in the south, uh, Mariupol is holding on. It's been leveled. They were told to surrender. They wouldn't. And then uh, and then you have the town of uh, Mayopek, who is, uh, who is uh, really the blocking blocking sled for Odessa, they are hanging tough. So I'm not sure who's time, who has time on their side. Who do you think? Uh, I think the Ukrainians, at least in the next week to 10 days, have time working increasingly in their favor. And if they continue to succeed in, in thwarting uh, additional Russian offensives, that puts them in a stronger position in these negotiations, which are going on. But no one thinks Putin is serious about a negotiated solution just yet. But he could uh, realize that he's lost all momentum. He suffered incredible losses, you know, 10,000 or more killed in action, uh, exposed the Russian military uh, as much weaker and poorly run than anybody would have thought. So this is the time where we in the West 
need to be ramping up our assistance to the Ukrainians so that they can really make some significant gains, make clear to the Russians they're not going to capture Kiev. Even Mariupol may be totally leveled, but they're not surrendering. Uh, that could uh, create the conditions uh, in which the Russians put the pressure uh, on, on Putin to uh, negotiate. Uh, there's got to be some people in the Russian elite who are getting increasingly nervous that Russia is going to become a permanent pariah state and that Putin has led them down the garden path here. Uh, and it's time, uh, time for a, ch a change in policy and, and even a change in leadership. Who has the power to get his attention inside Russia? I know it's been a while since you worked there, uh, 2001 to 2005. You, you do, have you met him? I met him occasionally when I was ambassador. It was a long time ago when he was uh, uh, just you know, a couple of years in office, hadn't yet uh, developed this rabid hatred for the West. He actually seemed to want to cooperate pragmatically with George W. Bush. Uh, but that changed after events in Ukraine back in 2004 the Orange Revolution, in which uh, protesters basically thwarted a Russian effort to uh, steal an election. Surprise, surprise. And uh, ever since then, he's seen the West as trying to use Ukraine as a vehicle to weaken and undermine Russia and his, and his efforts to restore the Russian Empire. So he's playing for keeps, but he's definitely overreached in the current situation. I, um, a couple of things. I mean, were, do you think the West was meddling in the election to make sure they were free and fair? Back in 2004? Yeah. Uh, the, the main meddling was, was the Russians. They sent plane loads of, uh, and it was fairly open, they sent plane loads of uh, political advisors and political experts to try to uh, influence uh, the election in favor of Yanukovych over the more Western-oriented uh, Yushchenko. And it was so brazen, and they, there was direct ballot box stuffing in the counting of the votes that the protesters succeeded in forcing a, a rerun of the election, which uh, Yushchenko won. Uh, but I remember the Russians saying to me at the time, uh, Putin will never forgive the West. You've stolen Ukraine from Russia, and that is unacceptable. And so we, we, we should have been listening a little more carefully to those kinds of warnings. So uh, these uh, Baltic nations obviously have stepped up big time. Uh, it seems like Russia, excuse me, Europe is making moves to get off Russian oil and gas. How could they not see that it's not in the national interest to do it? But now they seem to have gotten it. Do you believe that Germany, has cha their transformation that has happened, do you believe what, what they're saying, what they're doing, uh, committing $100 billion into their defense, starting to look and meeting with Norway and others about alternative forms of energy? Uh, suppliers, do you believe that this is a real transformation we're witnessing? Uh, I do think it's real. I think they're very sincere. I mean, the scales have fallen from people's eyes in Germany, which used to have a very romantic view of uh, Russia's place in Europe. I think that that has now been abandoned. They realize it was a total self-delusion. And this money that they're putting behind defense after years of being the laggards is, is substantial. Now, we have to help Make sure that they spend it on the right things and don't don't, don't waste it, because uh, you know this strategic competition with with Russia beyond Ukraine is going to be going on for years to come, and we need our allies to pull much more of their weight than they've historically done, and enough that we can free up some of our military capability to deal with China. So it's a dangerous world out there, but I, I think the Germans are serious, and that includes on the energy issues you mentioned. Uh, that that too will take time. 
and they unfortunately have jumped the gun in shutting down their nuclear power plants uh, in the hopes of moving to green energy. Uh, but I think that uh, with this new coalition government, uh, they seem to have more of a backbone than the previous uh, Christian Democratic-led uh, coalition. So I'm optimistic. So uh, General Keith Kellogg was on with me last night, and he talked about what the president needs to do as he goes to Brussels and then to Poland, cut 13. If he can't get across the Dnieper and go to the West, and by the way, if he went to the West, I think it's the elimination of his army, because they'll just eat him up in the Western approaches. But if you look at what's happening right now, he's got a major problem on how to settle this fight. My concern is, okay, where's his back door? How do we let him off the hook or, you know, give him an escape route? So this week, when, when Biden goes to uh, and talks to the NATO allies, you right. better sit down and say, how do we give this guy an escape route? Do you agree with that? You don't have to, obviously. Uh, that's General Kellogg's assessment. And what is an escape route that the West would find acceptable? Yeah, I, I would definitely not cast it as a, an escape route or help him find a face-saving solution. That's Putin's problem. You know, he's started this war. He's overreached. You know, he has to uh, figure out how to sell a settlement to his own public. And we, we don't have to go out of our way to help him. But, you know, there clearly is going to have to be some kind of political deal. And Zelensky, uh, as tough as it must be for him, uh, has consistently said he's ready to negotiate, sit down with Putin. And it looks like at least postponing this issue of NATO membership and accepting something like this neutral status that Finland or Sweden has, which should include, you know, the right to continue to have an army and to defend yourself, uh, may be the basis for for a deal. And... Uh, I think for Putin, the message needs to be all these sanctions that are crippling your economy will stay on until you accept a reasonable deal that restores Ukraine to being a genuine, sovereign, independent country and not just a vassal state as you would like to make them. And we keep the, the sanctions tight uh, and only lift them very gradually, very incrementally in return for, for real change on the ground, real compliance with the commitments that Putin makes. That means getting all of his troops out of Ukraine. There can't be any compromise on that. Uh, you mean about the Donbass region and Crimea? Well, again, these are, these are details. The Ukrainians have to make their decisions. But uh, I would say the starting point should be uh, at least going back to the status quo before the war began mm -hmm. on 24 February. Uh, but even better would be uh, to reintegrate the Donbass in Ukraine and at least Agree to disagree, put put on the back burner solving Crimea, uh, but don't don't give away anything on that either. Well, I promise uh, that I wouldn't. Uh, maybe they will. Uh, we'll have to see. So here's here's what this guy Lucas Kuntz uh, said. He's a former international negotiator officer. He's been down this road before. Is this what he said to to Shannon last night? Cut twelve. He thought that he could roll in there with a big show of force. Everyone would just roll over like they did in Crimea or something, and that uh, that he could take the country and in a couple months everything would be back to normal. But with him in charge or some puppet that he put uh, sort of in charge of the country, mm -hmm. it didn't happen that way. And so what you're seeing with more and more destruction is he's relaxing the rules of engagement more and more in order to accomplish the mission. And I think he's going to continue to do that unless we really put the screws to him and put him in a position where again he sees. Uh, uh, I really, really care about this. He sees that he has no positive end, and that's when Russia comes to the negotiating table. We have to get that coercion on them. Right, he's got to be cornered. Final thought, Ambassador Verspo? 
Yeah, and I agree with that. And that's why, as I said, we need to really ramp up military support and stop negotiating with ourselves and do things that will give some real additional capability to the Ukrainians. That includes long-range air defense missiles like the S-300, which several of the East European countries have. Greece has some of those. It means stopping dancing around this uh, issue of the MiG-29s that we tried to transfer from Poland until uh, the administration got, uh, got nervous about that. Uh, Putin is the one who keeps escalating this. We shouldn't be so worried about escalatory uh, interpretations of the things we do. We need to give capabilities to the Ukrainians now so that they can create that position of strength that will enable them to get a better deal at the negotiating table and, and force Putin to realize the time is going against his interests, not working in his favor. Ambassador uh, Virchbo, thanks so much. Between your years at NATO and Russia, uh, invaluable at this time. Thank you. You're very welcome. Hey, when we come back, I'll take your calls, one 408 7669 We have that, the Iran deal, the confirmation hearings, and so much more, as well as uh, the Hunter laptop story. I think it's going to get a lot bigger. At the bottom of the hour, Dr. Kevin Roberts at Heritage Foundation. You'll listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. If the numbers continue to show a low level of risk, let me say that again. If the numbers continue to show a low level of risk, masks will be optional for two to four years old students in schools and in daycare. Now, uh, we had that. And up until preschool, and they had to wear a mask, but that all changed, right? I don't understand. He said he had spoken to little kids that were under five years old to explain the situation. What four-year-old is going to, first of all, know who he is Ah. and understand this? Right. Well, I mean, four-year-olds should be making their own decisions. Yes. Uh, As long as they're not driving. Other than that, they can do anything else. But that would be a decision they make. That's true. Not to drive. We can't uh, hold them Because they don't even know what driving is, pretty sure. So that is good news. Uh, The COVID-19 thing, there's a variant uh, that's uh, going through the European continent. No big deal. Got it? No big deal. Easy to spread. It's a a sore throat. If you have the antibodies, you're fine. If you have Omicron, you got the antibodies. You're fine. You know, they say they want to get, if you're you're somebody vulnerable, that will open a 75 and over age bracket, they'll push in a fourth shot. Go ahead. Go ahead and do it. It's nothing on me. It's going to be one-way masking. If you want to wear a mask, no judgment, wear it. Don't ask me to do it. I'm not doing it. Not going to do it ever again. Uh, airplanes, they can't wait. I'm talking to these people in the airports. I've probably been on about five planes in the last three weeks. Every flight attendant, every pilot has had it. I mean, they have it worse. they got to tell people and wear it. And nobody wants to wear it. And the ones that are paranoid, wear it. Be Michael Jackson. He wore it all the time. Now everybody wears it. That took guts. Now everybody wears it. No one, don't feel bad. You wear it. Don't ask me to wear it. Dr. Kevin Roberts is president of the Heritage Foundation. He cannot believe this Iranian deal. The way it looks, he's going to break it down for us. And what bothers him most? Don't move. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Two-thirds of the semiconductors in the world are manufactured in Taiwan. If you want China, 
controlling two-thirds of the semiconductors in the world, um, then you're different than me. Because I don't want that. And I don't think that's in America's interest. So it's not just about Russia. It's about China and sending Xi a very clear message. Because they're looking at down the road what's next for them. American resolve has to be crystal clear. That is uh, Governor Christie making it clear that in New- to the audience in New Hampshire that he's running for president, for my, for my money. Dr. Kevin Roberts with us right now, president of the Heritage Foundation, knows the danger of China taking Taiwan, the big chip makers. We are bringing at least Intel back, but that's not going to be enough. Uh, he serves as the seventh president of the Heritage, and they've been around for about 50 years. Uh, Kevin Roberts, welcome. Oh, Brian, it's great to be on. Love your show. Love your books. You're a great American. And uh, I think Governor Christie's spot on. China's uh, a much bigger threat than Russia, although, of course, we need to be very concerned about the aggression that Russia is showing in Ukraine and elsewhere. Uh, I would think so. Uh, they, they are, there's something to be dealt with now, but we want to be able to pivot. If there's one thing China's got to be happy about is that we're not focusing on them because of Russia. But do you agree that the way this campaign is going so far as they rubble cities and have to deal with the unbelievable amount of casualties, that China can't be happy being their only real friend? No, I think you're, you're spot on. I, I a couple of things. The first is China can't be happy. This is an embarrassment to the Russian military. However, it sure would have been nice if the Biden administration had been more proactive rather than backfooted and sent more war material to the Ukrainians early. I'm not, of course, arguing for American troops on the ground. I don't think that was necessary, as we're seeing. But if you're China drawing that conclusion that in spite of America being caught backfooted vis-a-vis Ukraine, that it's still not going well, they can't be pleased. But point number two is I think China is also drawing a competing conclusion, which is that America has not been proactive in Ukraine. It's not been proactive, obviously, with the ridiculous and embarrassing withdrawal of Afghanistan. And therefore, this is the key point about the semiconductors. What will America's response be if China continues to show aggression toward Taiwan? That's really the ultimate question, even more than what's going on in Europe today. My, my hope is uh, my hope is that they'll see this and say this is going to be a problem in that they're trying to get their economy growing. Do we really need to pretend as if Taiwan is a threat to us uh, and risk all these, you know, global uh, global alienation to a degree, although I don't think people will be as bold to to go after them as they were to go after Russia, because Russia is not that much of an exporter. Well, I share your optimism that states make sure that Taiwan is is not invaded. But the only way we're going to succeed in that, Brian, is to make sure that we have a very different strategic posture than what we've had toward Putin and toward Eastern Europe. That is to say, we need to make sure written recently on foxnews.com, that we have to be very active in defending Taiwan, sending them more material, hopefully never have to have to be used, right? We, we want peace through strength, but we've got to signal to the Chinese Communist Party, you darn well better not cross that line the way Putin did. I would hope so. Here's what uh, Lindsey Graham, he has your same worry, cut 17. If Putin gets away with this, China will take Taiwan. And you worry about a new world order, President Biden? If we let the Ukrainian uh, people down and Putin wins here, China will take Taiwan and Iran will get a nuclear weapon. But during this debacle called uh, Ukraine, we're negotiating with the Iranians to give them a pathway to a bomb. And that's what is crazy, which brings me to my other thing. First, your thought about what he said. 
Well, I think he's spot on. I mean, in fact, it's a travesty that at the same time this this huge issue is going on in Eastern Europe, to, to make an understatement, that we're negotiating an oil and gas deal with Venezuela and also negotiating a nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, I, I don't engage in hyperbole, Brian. I lead a think tank, but it is just ridiculous to, to assume that in any foreign policy situation, this regime, the Biden-Harris administration, is going to choose the path of being backfooted and being weak rather than trying to achieve peace through strength. Which I think that there's a sentiment even in the House and the Senate right now that that we need to spend more money on defense from what we're seeing here. I am heartened by the fact that NATO seems to be having a common purpose and a new purpose. I am heartened by the fact that Russia is not the force they told us everyone, told everyone they were. I am not thrilled by the fact that we thought Zelensky was going to fall in two days and that Russia had that much power. It seems like our intelligence was off again. No, I think you're right. In in other words, two things. First, you're totally right to be heartened by those things. We are, too, at Heritage. We see a lot of reason for hope moving forward. We're trying to provide that intellectual ammunition, if you will, to both sides in Congress. But the second thing is we have to make sure that in the United States we get back to the custom, whether we have a Democrat president or Republican president, that we have a grand strategy that puts America first. Not America first with troops on the ground, but of our, our people, our freedoms, our sovereignty. And we're going to find that that's very clarifying for America's adversaries like China and Russia. So uh, talking to Kevin Roberts, he's president of the Heritage Foundation. So this Iran deal, by any clear thinking person, is not in America's interest. They go, oh, we got to stop them from getting a nuclear weapon. This deal does not do it. But if you want to know the mindset of the average Democrat, not all, listen to Chris Murphy on Sunday on Meet the Press, Cut 24. Is this the right time to do the Iran deal? There's no choice but to do the Iran deal. I mean, but can do you, you trust the Russians? I mean, this is a case where we have to we're, we're working with the Russians on this. It seems like an awkward time to do that. Cut the Russians out. I mean, you don't need the Russians, right? The material that was being removed from Iran on the original nuclear mm-hmm. deal went to Russia. There are other countries that can take it. You ultimately don't need the blessing of the U.N. to get this deal done. You think it's bad to have Russia as a nuclear power invading a sovereign neighboring country. Imagine what happens if Iran is a nuclear power. The rest of the Middle East will so you're good with doing weapons. this if we find a way to keep Russia out of the deal. You'd keep them completely out of the deal. Well, either if they're in the deal or out of the deal, we cannot allow Iran to obtain a nuclear weapon. That sets a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And I don't understand why my Republican colleagues, having watched what Vladimir Putin can get away with with nuclear weapons, want to hand nuclear weapons to the Iranians. What about that school of thought? You want to, do you want to take that on? Yeah, I'd love to take it on. It's, it's really clear. Uh, the Biden administration negotiating with Iran on the, on the nuclear arms deal, A, is appeasement plain and simple, and it will have terrible consequences for Americans and people abroad, especially in the Middle East. But secondly, there's some nuance in that response, and it's what you're asking about that I think is spot on, and it is the United States of America of all countries ought to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. That is to say, we ought to have stopped Putin from invading Ukraine by having been more proactive there. We ought to have months ago drawn a line in the sand versus Taiwan. And at the same time, Brian, to the point of your question, we ought to stop this ridiculous negotiation with the Iran deal. President Trump, Vice President Pence were totally correct in, in just uh, ending that immediately and saying that negotiation will never happen under their watch. So, you know, I think is interesting is that the Ayatollah Supreme Leader loves this deal, signed off on this deal. Why <laughs> no, is that? The, the original one in 2015, he didn't even like. 
Yeah, well, because it's even more generous. Look, I want to be really clear with you, Brian. There are a lot of great political observers, and I appreciate them on our side. I'm a policy observer. I lead one of the largest policy groups in the world. It's truly conservative. If there were something to commend about this deal, we would because we believe in telling the truth. I'm telling you straight up, my friend, there is nothing to like in this deal. The fact that the Ayatollah loves it should tell every American, including all of our Democrat friends, that this is something something that needs to stop immediately. You know what I loved? Uh, I, I I don't get up every day thinking the oil and gas companies are gouging me. It's all their fault. I am outraged that we are now putting our hand on the lever and telling these big financial firms don't take, uh, don't invest in these oil and gas companies. Meanwhile, we know how valuable these fossil fuels are to our economy and to the world economy, especially when uh, empires like Iran and Russia are suppliers of this. And we're looking to free ourselves and get control of our own past. The oil companies finally came back and wrote a letter really challenging uh, a lot of the things that that uh, Joe Biden's been saying about the truth about these oil and gas companies. And they came out and basically talked about the economy and that they're not the bad guys and a lot of their premises are wrong. He said, we certainly understood uh, in the letter the firsthand uh, impacts of higher costs driven by inflation and related factors. We can also have a small business and their employees. However, there's a key challenge standing in the way, the words and actions of you, Mr. President, and members of your administration. It's regrettable that you and your White House team have continued to mischaracterize facts regarding our industry, often maligning our motives, and frankly, in some cases, advance complete and total falsehoods from the first day of the administration, the very tone and tenor of your administration's attitude towards oil and gas in the U.S., and the people who make it have been consistently and openly hostile. For example, key members of your administration have repeatedly singled out the U.S. oil and gas as the primary driver of climate change, a position that just does not square with the facts given other factors in the U.S. economy, as well as the extraordinary harmful pollutants em- emanated uh, by international bad actors like Russia and China. And they take apart Jen Psaki and the president's 9,000 unused leases argument with specifics. Kevin, they don't know oil and gas. I don't drill for a living either. But the administration is taken apart in this letter in a way that shows how naive and agenda-driven they are. Will this resonate? Should that be a position of oil and gas in this country to be more offensive? Oh, totally. I mean, Brian, as you know, and I'm sure so many in your audience know, just two years ago, the United States of America was energy independent. And that was important, not just for our own economy, think of the contrast in gas prices, but very importantly for national security. And so instead of having those two goods, that is paying less at the pump, and also recognizing we don't have to depend on the Saudis or the Iranians or the Venezuelans or the Russians for oil and gas. Rather, we have an administration that is demonizing good people, good independent oil and gas producers who are just like you and me or your audience, and instead elevating the Iranians and the Venezuelans. This is the kind of thing to sort of take a step back that should not be a Democrat or Republican issue. This should be an American issue. We ought to embrace oil and gas and also recognize that new innovation new energy sources over the years because of American ingenuity will probably become more reliable. But in the meantime, the single best thing we can do is to get back to being energy independent, as we were just two years ago. Right. And I think we have to be provide be the supplier of Europe. And I know they were working on something right. to push in the Trump administration of having Portugal be the beginning of a, of a uh, pipeline through Europe uh, that would be – we would may allow us to be the, the – uh, natural gas supplier to the continent. 
Why don't we do that? Well, France had a problem with the Pyrenees Mountains in a small area, uh, environmental challenges. I'm I'm pretty sure Macron understands what the real challenge is right now. And with the change we've already seen, why not make that move in that announcement? Well, the reason, the answer to your question, and then I'll I'll give you a little bit of optimism. The re, the answer is because the environmental lobby in in D.C. is so powerful and influential over the American left, and what they've been able to convince Americans of just is that to be an environmentalist means we have to reject oil and gas. No, all of us, including those of us who are conservatives, are environmentalists, right? We don't want to damage our environment. America's got the cleanest water and air in the world. The point is, in order to get past that, it's what heritage colleagues have been saying for a long time. America desperately needs a grand strategy, and a grand strategy isn't just about military force. It's also about the kinds of pipeline projects that you discussed so that we would never have European allies or friends or even slight adversaries questioning the loyalty of the United States because we're participating in a marketplace that is oil and gas business that has done nothing other than lift more than a billion people out of poverty since 1980. This is something that Democrats ought to embrace as well. Liquid natural gas also burns clean, according to almost all the experts. Uh, Nuclear is an option that we ran away from after that natural disaster hit Japan. But finally, on this in the in the big picture, I think that I think that America would also enjoy hearing how we're going to do electric cars with 65 percent of all electric batteries are fueled by fossil fuels. And we also don't have cobalt and some of the rare earth. It looks like Japan, excuse me, China was way ahead of us on this. And one other place that existed was Afghanistan, and China has moved in and begin to mine it already. So don't tell me you want us off oil and gas. At the same time, give up rare earth that will allow us to go electric. At the same time, use fossil fuels to fuel your electric power. You hit the bullseye. I mean, we've been trying at the Heritage Foundation for years to explain that to people, that when we outline, when we connect all the dots that you just connected very articulately, it doesn't mean that you or we are shills for any industry, whether it be oil and gas or otherwise. We're talking about taking these geopolitics down to what I like to call the sidewalk level. This affects how individual Americans, real Americans outside the nation's capital, make their decisions. And it is okay to get excited about things like electric vehicles, but you also have to recognize the reality of what you said, which is that the only reason they operate is because we have an oil and gas industry that provides that power. We can look forward to some up here, Brian, 20, 25 years down the road when battery technology has caught up with the photovoltaics. But you know what? In order to do that, to your point about rare earths, we have to have a much better strategy as it relates to the Chinese Communist Party, who, of course, are developing a worldwide monopoly in those very minerals that would make our environmentalist friends so happy. Dr. Kevin Roberts, thanks so much. Best look at Heritage. I'll talk to you again. Thanks, Brian. Take care. You got it. one 408 7669 You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Well, Kavanaugh had a pretty significant process, I think, given the accusations that were alleged, right? And so he had a very rigorous and robust process. Well, look, it's it's interesting to me that the two um, 
the two judges that justices that Mitch McConnell points out that he hopes she's uh, she will be treated differently from are Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas, who <laughs> happen to be two who have were accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Yes. So yes, I hope she gets treated differently than people who've been credibly accused of that. And I just you know? a quick legal note is that Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Justice Clarence Thomas have both denied every allegation of sexual misconduct. Of course they did. Yeah, well, they had to read a disclaimer, right? They had to read a disclaimer on The View to quickly make sure they weren't sued because people have had it uh, with being wrongly accused. Uh, you know you know those cases, and you know what happened in them, and I think they want to quickly retract that. Not that I think it would benefit either one of them to go take on The View and have that go public, but it's just it's so much more respectful. I, I, don't, I know what happened in the past. I hope it doesn't get as bad as that ever again, and, and I know what we've seen in the past, and I just hope it doesn't go there again. I just don't think anyone benefits. When people talk about the polarization in this country, I actually think it started with Bill Clinton and the impeachment. But I also think it happened with the Supreme Court justice nominees because there's so much at stake as people view the country ideologically with these cases, especially when you turn a seat from Republican to Democrat, conservative to liberal. But don't make stuff up and don't pretend like you're interviewing former inmates that are reformed. These are already people that have worked up through the process and stood out in every shape, way, or form that usually have fantastic character. But if you want to have anyone come forward that maybe in 11th grade might have done something they regret, uh, maybe uh, drank too much in a a fraternity, I think you're going to lose a lot of quality candidates. And I think a lot of people that end up being saints in life uh, don't weren't saints their entire life. But I think so far we're seeing a lot. uh, We're seeing Judge Jackson going through the process without any fireworks. We're going to come back next time and, and play what happened just before with uh, with uh, Senator Lindsey Graham. Senator Lindsey Graham just stormed out because he was just defending. He says at Gitmo, yeah, you have a right to defense, but at Gitmo, it should be a military court. And even if you spend the rest of your life in jail, that's fine. I don't care how much it's going to cost because these people want to kill innocent Americans. Case in point, 9-11, the coal, and everything else that happened in between. I want to make sure you guys watch One Nation on Saturdays, Fox and Friends every morning, and keep it here on the Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.